speech and all three networks stopped to take it. Sure. Um, that says something about yeah. the general um, traction that it has. And so that's an interesting data point for me as I'm conceiving of the show. Well, I, I you know, we, we were just talking about the fact that you were just on TBTL and you spent, you and Luke spent a lot of time talking about the, um, the missing plane and about how you're not spending a lot of time talking about it. There, there's sort of a there, there's an oversaturation point, right? Yeah, there's an oversaturation point, and I also think there's a difference between the, the each of the cable news networks have pretty different audiences, mm-hmm. and those audiences have different um, preferences and different levels of demand for certain stories. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we are a cable news network, but we're also a cable news network that has a very specific audience, and so. Um, sometimes it's useful to see what generally is playing in cable news, and sometimes it's really uh, not useful and a distraction. So, so why? I mean, why would something like the the missing plane not not really fall within well, your purview? Well, it did. It I did. mean, we covered so, it. Yeah, <laughs> um, we 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 covered the missing plane. I covered the missing plane. Uh, we led with it a number of nights. It was in mm-hmm. the show for several weeks. Um, I think. Uh, no one has covered the missing plane as much as CNN. I yeah. think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that was when you're making a judgment about what to put on the show. There's mm. a number of things you're thinking about, but there's two central judgments. <laughs> there's a there's one set of judgments that are journalistic judgments of newsworthiness and kind of emotional or preferential or political judgments about mm-hmm. importance and. Mm-hmm. And then there's judgments about, um, for lack of a better word, entertainment and uh, and and audience demand. Yeah. Um, and you can't you cannot do a good show ignoring either of those. Mm-hmm. Each of those have to play in every decision you make about what to put on the show. Um, and there was tremendous demand for missing plane coverage. Yeah. I mean, for all the media criticism written about it, the demand was there. So so when how do you how do you approach something like that? You know, specifically, you know, you know, you're going to have to cover. It. You know, people are interested in. It. I mean, obviously, it's news, and everybody's talking about it. Um, to some degree, it's got to be important that you're covering it differently than everybody else. I mean, you know, why are they tuning into you specifically to watch this? How how are you how are you approaching a sort of just a, a big broad news story like that? It's hard. It's yeah. really hard. Um, you try to. First of all, you try to do basically good journalism in the sense of being responsible, of not um, not giving air to preposterous mm-hmm. conspiracy theories, yeah. um, of of being informed enough. I mean, there were a lot of facts. There were a lot of contextual facts. I think in the beginning period, where there was very little information about the plane itself, the most useful thing to cover were contextual historical facts mm-hmm. about. Um, black boxes and not even black boxes yeah. in the beginning it was about precedent right mm-hmm. okay so okay. what are what are the examples of yeah. similar things of these flights there was this air egypt flight that looked up, uh, in retrospect to be like it might have been pilot suicide there's a different ruling on it there was a famous air france flight in the atlantic that's the most direct analog mm-hmm. for a plane that just disappears out of the sky um and so that's useful right because that's uh, unlike the the information we don't have which is what happened to the plane where to go there's information about um historical precedents that might be serve as useful analogs or some kind of contextual information. There's also information about how does the fly-by-wire function of a seven of a triple seven work? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the different uh, communications electronic systems? Right. So the key thing is to sort of stay on the stay on the ice uh, 
yeah. the solid footing of stuff that is real facts in the world. <laughs> but but what, what, once you're asking yourself the question of how do we keep covering this, like how do we, you know, which, which is obviously a question that CNN's been asking a lot over the past week, yeah. then maybe that's when it's time to, to move on. Yeah, I mean, it's, yes, yeah, right. I mean, you run out of things to. We've stopped covering it because it just seems to me that once it went to the search, and mm-hmm. I mean, to me, the big moment was was the the fairly definitive declaration of where it went. Uh, part of what part of what I think drove audience demand in the story was the mysterious nature of it, mm-hmm. and 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 specifically the notion that it could have landed somewhere. I mean, that was the thing that I think all of us sure. were in the back of our heads were asking this question: like, could it? be somewhere if it was just wreckage it wouldn't have been a story for as long as it was right yeah i think that's right because it the 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 thought of the thought that someone had managed to take a plane and land it somewhere without anyone noticing Mm -hmm. was a amazing mind-blowing thought to consider and i think that was the the driver underneath a lot of the the demand when it became clear that well fairly clear although until we have wreckage not definitive that this went into the remotest part of the Indian Ocean, that the fact that it went to the remotest part of the Indian Ocean lends strong credence to the theory that it was essentially flying under autopilot for hours, that something catastrophic happened that took people out that led it to fly by autopilot for mm-hmm. hours until it ran out of fuel. Um, I think it, you know, until we find the wreckage and then can know, then there's not much more to say about it. So what what is the process like for actually putting a, a show together? I mean, I, I guess you're pretty close to that time of day right now right as soon as we as soon as we finish this i mean yeah we already have a rundown yeah you you know what you're going to talk about tonight well with the with the caveat that if something breaks yes so so, uh, take me through a day then you know assuming again that Um, you're not talking to me for so i wake up wake up in the morning uh when my children wake up Mm -hmm. uh which is typically 7 30 or so 7 7 30 depends um and in the morning i will be hanging out with them i have a new uh, infant son and a, a two-year-old and you know breakfast and all that stuff but while doing that i'll be sort of checking uh the, the internet reading in on stuff mm-hmm. and i'm just constantly constantly 24 hours well 18 hours a day reading what's going on were, were you I, I mean i assume you weren't 18 hours a day before but you you had to have been some kind of a news junkie before yeah, you accepted sure. this yeah job. yeah definitely yeah. um and so even during the show, I'll be like, right now, it's just like, oh, what's going on? You know, I'm constantly looking at what's happening. It's this sort of constant influx of information from a variety of sources. Um, and we have a staff member who puts out a note, an editorial note in the morning that usually goes out around 10 or so. Mm-hmm. And that note will have a combination of thing, events that are happening today with big stories that day and then other stories that people on the staff have sent to that staffer or I've sent to that staffer that are, you know, today looks like we're going to do a, a segment on this really interesting story about Bain Capital investing in methadone clinics because hmm. um, they they see a real growth potential there because of the, <laughs> um, the uh, heroin. surging heroin yeah. use, yeah. particularly, which is, which, is a, which is probably a byproduct of painkiller addiction um, and then painkiller it's a sort of interesting unintended consequences story about policy because mm. there's these pain centers, a lot of painkiller addiction, particularly in areas that were really hard hit by the economic crisis closing down. Then, then policy yeah. came into, came to the floor to kind of cl- shut those down yeah. and shut off access to painkillers. And so people that are addicted to painkillers are, it appears substituting with heroin in a lot of places. Is that, is, is, is that how you, how you um, approach stories generally is, is sort of getting to 
the the underlying political meat of them? Yeah, sometimes there are some stories that aren't super political, yeah. but I'm a pretty ideological political person. Well, and there's you know, and and when people watch your show, certainly they're expecting that to some degree. When people to watch some dis- to, yes, it, to some degree, yeah. I mean, they know where I'm coming from. They expect a kind of worldview. Yeah, they expect the they expect the editorial choices and the coverage is animated by. I think it's animated by something other than neutrality. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a, a conception of what kind of world you want to see, and they know more or less. The audience watches shows every night, like sort of knows where I stand, what my principles are. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a weird it's a weird world we live in in terms of news, though, right? I mean, you know, people are tuning into specific stations. But, um, see, people say that, but yeah. it's not a weird world, right? Like it, the anomaly in the history of journalism yeah. that is the norm. Mm-hmm. In the history of journalism, sure. across First, the world, yeah. across history, yeah. in this country, take every piece of journalism ever produced, okay, mm-hmm. and make a pie chart. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of it is coming from outlets that have some kind of perspective position that's well known. And then there's this small sliver <laughs> that is basically American newspapers and broadcast products in the era from roughly the first world war to mm-hmm. you know today yeah and that's a tiny sliver yeah. right we think of that as normal because that's the world that sure. we are embedded in sure uh, is that is the idea is the concept that it's uh, of objective journalism i mean is that is there a problem in that is is there a problem in sort of coming out and saying that you don't have a bias in no, from the standpoint I, that everybody I, I guess has some sort of bias no i sort of think of it as like an ecosystem like mm. is you know a healthy ecosystem has uh it's got plants it's got uh animals that eat those plants got animals that eat those other animals mm-hmm. it's got scavengers that eat the carcasses of the animals when they so what die are, what are you in the ecosystem you know i would say that we're um <laughs> what are we i mean we you know we couldn't do what we do without great a lot of great frontline reporting mm-hmm. from objective outlets so yeah. i don't you know i would i would hate to see a world in which you know the arkansas gazette which we're using a piece of didn't exist and the reporter mm-hmm. of the arkansas gazette who got the good quote went away we wouldn't be able to do our job right we are but the point is that in if you use the ecosystem model then you're not constantly asking this question of like what's the best model right like is it better to have opinionated news or objective news sure you're you're trying to think about whether the the full ecosystem is thriving Right. With the awareness that the ecosystem is going to have all these different kinds of creatures in it. Mm -hmm. And a thriving ecosystem is one that has sufficient, you know, now ecosystems can be hurt. Right. If there's a virus that knocks out the, um, you know, the the uh, the plants at the at the bottom of the food chain, for instance, knocking out huge amounts of local reporters Mm -hmm. at local dailies. That's going to have really bad effects for the entire ecosystem, right? But it's not this sort of normative question. It always gets phrased in the terms of this normative question of, well, is it is this problematic that there's news with opinion or news, you know? And to me, it's like that that question is a strange question in a historical mm. sense and also just not really the right question to ask about what a healthy media environment is. Well, let me ask you this then, you know – it's it's important. Is it important? It's important to be upfront about it. It's important to be upfront about the fact that yes. you you're bringing opinions to the table. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I actually think I think I think transparency on that account is really important, and I do think there's something really insidious about if I came out here every day and did this job and was like I have no biases. 
I do have biases, and I, and and bias is a negative word. The, the the positive word is I have politics. I have things I believe in. Uh-huh. Like I am not neutral between people getting healthcare and not getting healthcare. <laughs> like I'm not. I, well, well, I'm rooting for certain outcomes, and the audience knows that. And and the other thing I would say is another model to sort of jump metaphors around. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in a court, uh, in a trial court, which is like journalism a fact-finding enterprise right so in a civil litigation or criminal court it's fact-finding enterprise there are three different um sounds like the intro to law and order yeah right there's three different components right there's the um there's the plaintiff's lawyer there's the defendant Mm -hmm. there's the judge Mm -hmm. and they're all playing different roles and the idea behind the adversarial system is that an adversarial system actually produces fact-finding right so it's not it is not the job of the plaintiff's lawyer to make the defense lawyer's case for him. Sure. It's not the job of the defense lawyer to make a plaintiff's lawyer's case for him. What you want is through the adversarial exchange, um, the facts to emerge. And there's some kind of corollary in journalism. Like Here's a good example. There's a few conservative, really good conservative reporters on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Philip Klein is one uh, who I who I read who's just a good reporter, he doesn't like Obamacare. Like, he does not believe in Obamacare. He thinks it's a bad law, right? But that doesn't invalidate his reporting. And he t- his reporting tends to focus on the negatives. And I have learned a ton from Philip Klein's reporting about things that aren't going well with Obamacare. At the end of the day, the facts have to check out, right? And he's a very careful reporter and a good reporter. And they, and they do bear out, right? So when he's writing about, he was the one, I think, the first alerted me to the absolute catastrophe that is Oregon's implementation of their exchange Mm. in which still now on April 15th I don't think they've enrolled a single person in the state Mm. exchange there now he might take away different ideological lessons from that but it was partly his ideological animus towards the bill that animated him to cover that story and in some senses I'm glad (laughs) because I read that story partly because he was animated to to cover it partly because he doesn't like the law so so in terms in terms of your show specifically, I mean, you know, is it is it is it a reflection of your of of your politics? Is it you know is it a reflection of um, more of MSNBC as an outlet? I mean, you know, are, it's a uh, I would say it's a pretty it's a pretty square reflection of my politics mm-hmm. um, with the with the important um, I would say it's, it's a reflection of my politics in the context of doing a television show that I want people to watch. Yeah. I mean, there are things like, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I am, yeah. I am, I would say I, as a person am more, far more interested and animated about financial regulation mm. than one would get from just watching my show in terms of how often I talk about it. So it, it's, le- it's less that you think that your opinions are particularly polarizing more that um, you're kind of a wonk and then that it's potentially more I guess, boring for a mainstream audience? Well, look, television's a visual medium, right? I mean, this question occurs to us all the time. Like, okay, you want to cover the SEC, the new SEC rule on capital requirements. Like, what do you show? Like, produce the segment. Yeah, Yeah, right. What's the B-roll? Like, the outside of the SEC. Sure. Like, people in suits, briefcases, graphs. Like, so yeah, you know, compare that to the story about this crazy story in Nevada with Clive and Bundy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's I got great pictures. I have I have something to show, and I am doing a television show. <laughs> that's a hard line. To, that's a hard line to walk, though. I mean, it's it's hard. It's it's hard not to become too sensationalist when, right? I mean, yeah. when when yes. the important stuff is often the boring stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the job is to make the boring stuff interesting, yeah. um, and and also to pick your spots, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the other thing that the one of the things I learned, um, in the first two or three months of this show, I do an hour of television every day. Yeah, you're gonna get your shots, right? It's like you can do. Um, my the, the best example of this was in some ways was Syria. Mm. I remember being like, we gotta, we have to cover Syria more. It's important, but it's just a, it's just a horrible story, and mm-hmm. it's a kind of horrible story that leaves people just feeling impotent. You know, I mean, you, I even now I read about it. It's like th- we are watching something horrific happen, and I don't, I'm not clear yeah. that there's anything we can do about it. I mean, I give money, you, you can give money to Doctors Without Borders, um, but I remember being like, we should cover Syria more, and then. In August of uh, 2013, the chemical weapons attack mm-hmm. happened. Uh, the the president said that they were going to have punitive strikes against the Assad regime. He then went to Congress. The crazy thing happened where John Kerry's sort of in the moment thought experiment about Assad giving up chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. Now we cut like that. We then covered the heck out of Syria, and I think we did a good job covering Syria. And so the point is that if there's something you care about mm-hmm. and you're doing a show every night, it'll be it'll present itself. Yeah. You've got time to fill. You've got well, no, you you just have you also have time, yeah. not time to fill. You yeah. have time over a course of like you are the product mm. isn't every single night show. I mean, that is the yeah. product you work towards, but in toto the product is the show mm. as an iterative experience. And so every night won't reflect everything you think is the most important in that day mm. what you want is when you look over the cor- look over the, the scope of what the show's doing you know are you making broadly in the context of a year of a show the kind of editorial judgments about importance that you stand behind so so you know when when, when you're talking about this the, the the serious story and you're talking about this sort of you know idea of you know, I, I, I guess kind of feeling helpless which you know is, is probably the sense that most people get when they talk about politics in general um I, i'm wondering how how you how you personally sort of sustain talking and thinking about this all the time you know i was i was one of those people who um got a little more political during bush you know was a little was a little more frustrated as probably like you know most people on the left are but at a certain point it it's it's incredibly tiring it's incredibly taxing i don't know how people can make that their lives yeah i I think um, in some ways I think that's just about partly about my upbringing and my likes and dislikes. I mean, yeah, sometimes you get burnt out. Yeah. Um, But I've always, since I was, you know, I don't know, since I was 13 or 14 or 12, I was obsessed with politics and Mm -hmm. ideas and news. And so I, and I remain that today and it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like a burden. I mean, there are occasional times I think that, you know, like any job that you do day in day out and sure. um and there are certain stories that just feel like oh god you know this, this is a chore um but on, on the whole like i love what i do and i love talking like i'm excited tonight we're doing a thing about you know we're doing a thing about um th- this great story Ezra did it on Vox about just like this crazy essentially conspiracy that's been hatched to keep your taxes as difficult as possible uh-huh um, 
which is this unholy alliance of Intuit that makes TurboTax, H&R Block, and the tax preparers, and Grover Norquist, who wants wants taxes to be as difficult as possible because he wants you to hate the IRS, because he wants you to hate taxes, because he wants you to hate government. And the IRS could just give everyone a pre-filled out mm-hmm. return. Very easy. They know how much money you made. They know how much was withheld, and they don't know how much you owe. And for 80% of filers, you could literally get something in the mail that was like, here's your taxes, and you look it over and be like, yep, this is right. Sign it. Send it back in. So what's exciting to you about that story is just um... – I don't know. Is, is it this this idea of shedding light on on? Yes, it's both. It has yeah. both. That story has both discovery. Yeah, and it has like there are people doing the wrong thing. Yeah. that I get to go on my television show tonight and tell a million people about. So that's for I mean, that's, that's satisfying. That being being a you want, you want to be a whistleblower. I mean that's. Right, that's the part of it. Of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think calling people out on yes, their the shit. most satisfying yeah. thing. The most satisfying. I, it's very satisfying to. It is very satisfying to be in a position when you feel like someone is getting away with something they shouldn't be, that is hurting people, to be able to go and say, hey, look what this person's doing. So how long have you been, how long have you been with the station for? Um, I was a, I I was, I came out as a contributor and a guest host in the spring of 2010. Okay. I started the weekend show up in the fall of 2011. And I have been doing All In With Chris Hayes for a year. We just had our first one-year anniversary. I mean, this is all really, this is all really recent. This, yeah, this happened, yeah. This happened incredibly fast. How did, how did all of this happen so quickly? I don't know. It didn't feel, it felt kind of all, it didn't feel yeah. quick. I mean, it felt like I, first I was a guest. Starting in 2008, I started appearing on the network as a guest. And I did that for a few years, and I was appearing as a guest more and more, and I was the Washington editor of the nation. I was writing my column. I was writing feature articles. And then, uh, and then I was asked to come to New York and guest host for Rachel, and that went well. And so they guest hosts, they always need guest hosts in cable news because, <laughs> you know, you don't do reruns and people get sick. They get take time off. Mm-hmm. And so I started guest hosting a lot, and that went well. And then after guest hosting, we, I kind of hatched this idea of a weekend show and did that, and that went well. And then they came to me and asked me about going to primetime and i kind of hemmed and hawed and ultimately yeah said yes and and so it it, it didn't feel like and at, at every step it felt like oh, okay yeah that that kind of makes sense i mean i i I, rem- I actually remember you guesting on on rachel's show um i, I was definitely i was watching it a, a lot back then and um i'm and i say this in the nicest way possible because obviously this isn't the case now but you you were not a tv guy when you started no 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 i mean it was you know it wasn't it cl- clearly it wasn't your medium at the beginning no, obviously right. you've gotten much better at yes it. um you know you've, you've, you've got a primetime show now was that was that the plan did you want no, to be that, a, you didn't want to be a tv guy no no that was not the plan the plan was just to do journalism that i yeah. cared about um but you know tv like is like anything i mean you get your reps in you get better at it yeah if you work hard and you and you are you kind of study it and you know it's like free throw shooting or sure. but, writing, but, but why 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 make that transition? I mean, you know, the, obviously the nation's a, a hugely respectable, long, you know, old school publication. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess there's part of it is I think part of it is there are two things about TV that I like that I missed when I was doing print. One is that it's a far more collaborative undertaking. Mm. Like I used to do a lot of theater. Uh, in high school, I did theater in college, and I just loved some of the best times of my life was, you know, you're in a theater at three in the morning and you're putting a set together and there's 20 people in there and someone's up on a ladder hanging a light. Someone's Mm -hmm. telling them where that light focuses while someone else is 
screwing in a flat and then someone else is running lines with someone else and you just feel like you're part of this collective undertaking that I find really um, spiritually nourishing. And you didn't get that imprint? Well, you don't you you spend all day with your laptop. Yeah. I mean, that's the the like writing is a solitary enterprise sure. and 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 I love writing. I just wrote a big long piece for the nation and I love writing and I I will write until I can't write anymore. Um, but it is solitary and I, I adjusted to the solitariness of it fairly well and I got used to it and I found ways to kind of keep myself not feeling isolated and alone, which can happen Mm -hmm. when you're writing. Um, but when I started doing this and I was in this collaborative environment, like there, that's something really nourishing about that. And then the other, the other thing I would say about it, the the second thing I like is I like performance. Mm -hmm. I, I was an actor in high school and college. I did a lot of theater you know, we kind of, it's like, I, I kind of come in and make a play every day, and then we perform it at the end of the day. <laughs> and I I get a real endorphin rush from it every night. That hour is a really, that's a, it's heady. It's, it's, you, there's something happening biochemically. I, I, I was, I was sort of surprised. I mean, I guess it's still relatively early in the day, but, um, you know, you got your little kind of newsroom out here. It's, it's quiet. There's, there doesn't appear to be a ton of stuff happening right now is when is that going to change and if so when no i mean have you ever ever been to the new york times uh no okay if you go into the new york times headquarters the first thing you notice that is like a cathedral like yeah it's quiet and when you see uh like uh cinematic depictions of newsrooms they're always like loud and like there's like voices and clacking of typewriters but partly because the internet a modern newsroom is a pretty quiet place Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, like people right now are, um, there's some people probably having phone conversations with people they're calling about stories we're doing, but also reading the internet, cutting tape on their headphones. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is a pretty, in some ways a well-functioning, a a well-functioning newsroom should be kind of quiet in a way. (laughs) There you go, Chris Hayes of MSNBC. You can uh, you can watch the show all in. It's uh, on at 8 p.m. Eastern time on MSNBC. Uh, thanks so much, to Chris, for taking the time to do that. Actually, uh, I met him last year at South by Southwest. I, I name-checked a podcast that we both listened to and that he's on from time to time uh, while he's doing a book signing. And finally, after uh, about a year and change of trying to, to, to line things up, we, we finally managed to get the interview done. Uh, I met him up in his office. He was... Um, it was a few minutes late, and I only measure this because he was actually going to, to grab uh, a sandwich, like a you know like a real life normal person, in spite of the fact that he he does his own MSNBC show. Uh, very very humble, very nice guy. Um, also, super interesting. I think we may have touched on this during the interview, but his office has a direct view of the Fox News building, so it's like about an avenue over from uh, from Thirty Rock. You can see all the you know, the giant giant Bill O'Reilly posters. Um, so. I thought that was a great talk. Thanks uh, thanks again to Chris for fitting me into his extremely busy schedule. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the show together. Thanks to Mark and everybody else at the Boing Boy Podcast Network for hosting us up. Uh, if you like this show, you will probably like other shows over there. You can check them out over at boingboing.net, or you can go to iTunes. They've got a great page over there. Oh, excuse me. I should say that we've got a great page over there. Um, and, oh, while you're at iTunes, why not rate the show? You know, 50 episodes in, I think we use a well, 51 episodes and we could use a, a few more ratings over on iTunes uh, also if you liked what you heard you can send us a, an email it's riolcast at gmail.com uh, we've got a Tumblr account that's riolcast.tumblr.com you will get the episodes hours if not days before they go up on Boing Boing 
and iTunes. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of RIL. Got all kinds of exciting episodes lined up. I've been keeping, I've been keeping busy with these interviews. We've got some uh, nice, uh, nice high-profile ones coming up. Uh, I, I literally just moments ago spoke to uh, Scott Ackerman. Uh, at a hotel in Manhattan uh, last week I talked to Ben Harper and his mother putting out an album together that one's going to be out next week just in time for Mother's Day so um, yeah, stick around we will be coming back next week with the thing that I just mentioned <laughs>